All right, Think Squad, picture this. You're driving south on 65 through Indiana with your family. It's the middle of August. It's about 8 p.m. And off to the right, you see the sunset. It's brilliant. The clouds seem to be burning with fiery shades of pink and purple and orange. And so you yell back to your kids, hey, kids, look at this. They take off their headphones and say, what, dad? Look at the sunset. They look and are appropriately awed. Because you don't want to miss this great teachable moment, you say, only the true and living God could create a sunset like that. The Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And sunsets like that one really reveal how awesome the Lord is. Right, kids? But dad, you hear a voice pipe up from the way back. Why does it have to be our God? Why couldn't some other God have created that sunset? Like, how do we know the heavens aren't declaring the glory of some different God? How would you respond? How you answer that question, which is really an apologetics question, will reveal what you believe about general revelation. General revelation is God's truth revealed in the created world. Wouldn't it be great if we had a thoughtful response to our kids ready? If we could get some help thinking through general revelation, what it is, what it exactly does tell us about God and how we know which God, as though there could be more than one, nature truly reveals. And that's why I've brought in Dr. Owen Anderson again. Dr. Anderson has been tackling questions like this for over 20 years. He's a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Arizona State University. I've had him on to talk about the Luciferian messages in Hollywood movies, and the deeper philosophical meaning of the book of Job. And today, we're diving into the topic of general revelation. It's a topic he knows a lot about and one that I'm trying to learn more about, maybe just like you. In our conversation, we get into why is general revelation important to know about? What is general revelation? What can it teach us? What does the Bible say about it? What is the argument from divine hiddenness? And why doesn't it hold water? Does general revelation reveal a God or the God? What does general revelation actually reveal about God? Does general revelation reveal the Trinity? How can we use general revelation in a presuppositional apologetic? And what do dads need to know to equip their kids to rightly interpret general revelation? My name is Joel Setacase. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry, where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, if you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. 
There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey. We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge. And it's actually led to some real life hangouts as well. So check it out, the Think Squad Facebook group. Oh, and for those who don't know who you are, why don't you just give us a brief introduction to you and your work? Yeah, hi. So I'm Dr. Owen Anderson. I'm a professor of philosophy and religious studies at Arizona State University. And I also teach philosophical theology at Phoenix Seminary. And my work is in the realm of the philosophy of religion. I've especially focused on the idea that it's clear that God exists so that unbelief is without excuse. And I published a book on that called The Clarity of God's Existence and uh, other books about the moral law, the Declaration of Independence, the First Amendment and religious freedom. So all of my work kind of revolves around this question of general revelation, which is what we'll be talking about today. Yeah, very cool. And uh, and something that I've been really looking forward to speaking with you about because, you know, I get this question quite a bit. Let me say this. There are a lot of people who think that the world kind of maybe points towards a sort of general concept of God, like a bare yeah. theism. And um, from what I've spoken with you about, I don't believe that's your view at all. And it's not my view. I think that that uh, the world reveals a lot more about God than most people are willing to admit or acknowledge. Um, but yeah. real quick, um, I just want to point out our other guest here today, yeah. my co-host. Uh, so this is Lucas Sedeques, and um, this is my buddy. This is my son, our third born. And um, Lucas is joining us today because we're talking about something that he's actually learned in our catechism, catechids, which is something that we, we're we going through. I think Lucas is going through a second or third time through the catechism. Um, but uh, real quick, Luki, I want to ask you a couple of questions and see how you answer them, okay? If God is in control, must we still choose? Yes, we must choose to serve and glorify Him. And what are the two ways we learn to know God? By his work and by the word. Exactly right. And that's what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about the works of God. So we talk a lot about the the word of God, which what, what do we call the word of God, Lucas? The Holy Bible is the word of God. Yeah. But today we're going to talk about the works of God, which is the created world, the world that God has created. And um, what did God make? God made me and everything. Right. And how did God make everything? Out of nothing by his work. Exactly right. So we're going to talk about the works of God and how they teach us about God. So if you've ever been curious to know how exactly the natural world or the creation or even the testimony of our own hearts and minds actually point to God and actually reveal God, this is going to be a really enlightening and informative episode. So, um, Owen, why don't we just go ahead and, and get into it here? Uh, and let's start with this question. Why is general revelation a controversial issue? What makes it a, a what makes it a controversy and then what makes it an important issue for us to be talking about? Yeah. I think interestingly, it may not be so much a controversy as simply overlooked. And then when you begin to point it out, then someone might say, Whoa, wait a minute. This seems dangerous. Because one of the first questions I get is, or more of a statement. So you're saying you can be saved from general revelation? And for some reason, that always comes to his mind. And, and no, no one's saying that. Uh, the, the Westminster Confession begins, the first chapter, first line, that the light of nature 
and the works of creation and providence do reveal God so that unbelief is without excuse, yet our knowledge of salvation is from the scripture. That's a slight paraphrase, but that idea. So the problem is this. Why do we need to be saved? What are we being saved from? Well, we're being saved from not seeking God. And that can't mean we didn't seek God in the Bible because the Bible is explaining how to be saved. It means we didn't seek God in general revelation. So making sense of the gospel of redemption of sin requires we begin, just as the, the confession does, begin with some things are clear about God and we should know what they are. Okay. And these things that are clear about God from the, the natural world, how do you refer to it? The natural world, the created world, the cosmos, what do you call it? Well, any one of those is fine. I, I think all of those have good things. I, I usually phrase it as uh, the works of creation and providence. And providence has both uh, general history, but that also then includes redemptive history and scripture. Oh, so interesting. Providence covers everything. Okay. Um, do you see there being a biblical warrant for dividing God's revelation up into two kinds, his general revelation and his special revelation, because if it all comes from God and it's all God's self-revelation at some level, isn't it all special revelation in some sense? Well, it's I'm sorry, all isn't it all general revelation in some sense? Right. Well, let's, so, so good. Let's see about the difference there. Uh, I think in the reformed tradition, we begin with the idea that God is only known as he reveals himself. So we don't have direct access, like as if you see the being of God. It says God is a spirit whom no man has seen or can see. So we only know God as reveals himself, and that revelation is in his works. So that begins with general revelation, but here's, the, here's where the problem comes in. We've not been seeking God in general revelation. So we've fallen into unbelief. So now we need an additional revelation to explain redemption. So sometimes... The way I distinguish them, then, is I say general revelation and redemptive revelation. Hmm. Okay. General revelation is not redemptive, and no one's suggesting you could be saved from it, and nor is anyone saying you don't need the redemptive revelation. So that's one, one big critique. I think what happened is that uh, unbelief began to rule the area of general revelation. So you have uh, naturalist accounts like Darwinism. Uh, for biology or or a Marxism for economics. And instead of Christians pushing back and saying, no, those are fundamental misunderstandings of general relation, they said, okay, I guess we just need the Bible then to correct those things. Hmm. What we should have done is said, we can use general relation to correct those things. Interesting. And um, you, you don't see theories that arrive from secular thinkers as being part of general revelation? Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Like, They're just not correct. I'm, I'm using some examples that I think are incorrect. Got it. Um, got it. Well, and you've even, I've seen the way you've spoken online on social media and stuff. You've even critiqued the Greek philosophers, which I think a lot yeah. of Christians, especially in the more, you know, Thomist, um, yeah. obviously Thomas Aquinas was a major fan of, of uh, Aristotle, but yeah. you've, you've said things like Plato, Aristotle, these guys didn't even begin it, begin to have wisdom, right? Yeah, they, well, what I said, I think, is they need to repent of unbelief. Oh, yeah, okay. And so here's the problem, is that I think when we begin with the idea that there's this vague general revelation that gives us kind of a shadow, and then we need the scriptures to fill in the details about God, not, not about redemption, but about God's eternal power and divine nature, uh, because, of course, Romans 1 says those are available from creation. 
But when we start this idea that, yeah, there's just this vague shadow of a higher power out there, then we might start to say things like, Plato and Aristotle got really close. They just need the Bible to fill in some details, which is like saying yeah. they're not an unbelief. But when we look at Plato yeah. and Aristotle's view of God, this is not God the creator. Not to mention that they say the material world is eternal with God. Plato thinks our soul has existed from eternity. By, by eternal, I mean without beginning. Okay. Right? Because we could have a soul that had a beginning and has no end. That's yeah. everlasting. But our soul didn't exist from eternity with God. So those are things that Plato and Aristotle need to repent of. They're idols that, that were built up. Do you, do you think that they had wisdom? Did Aristotle have wisdom or knowledge? Yeah, that's the thing is it's not an either or, right? It'd be hard to find a book anywhere that only says false things, right? It's like, it's like if you give a student, I don't know if you've ever, ever had a professor do this, but a professor with a true false test, like 100 questions will say, if you get every question wrong, you'll also get an A. Right. Because on a true false test to get every single question wrong, huh. you'd have to have known what the right answers are. So, yeah, it'd be hard to find a book that only has false things in it. Right. Play yeah, on Aristotle yeah. believe two plus two is four. That's true. Yeah. Um, but when it comes down to God, especially and the highest good, what, what both of them taught about our highest good is what could be summarized as the beatific vision, which is what you and I have called Gnosticism in a previous podcast, which is that our goal as spirits is to get out of our bodies and climb the great chain of being up until where we either become divine or we get to see the divine directly, but it's otherworldly. You leave this body behind. There's no resurrection. Uh, you ignore all the works of God. None of those matter. So that's what, that's the kind of contemplationism that they taught. What exactly is general revelation how is it different from special revelation and um how do we even know that general revelation is a thing so general revelation is just the creation around us what psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of god so when you look around i think you can you can quite easily construct an argument about how the world is dependent and as it being dependent it can't have existed from eternity so that's a quick overview, but the idea that something is eternal, something existed from eternity, and it's not me, contrary to Plato, and it's not the material world, also contrary to Plato, uh, it's God alone, what, what Lucas told us earlier, God made me in all things. That's a truth that everybody on earth can and should know, and that's where Paul begins in Romans chapter 1, describing unbelief. You should know that, you didn't know that, and, and so be, the consequences are you made idols to rep to uh, replace God. When we're when we're thinking about general revelation, as followers of Jesus, believers in God's word, you know, we have access to special revelation, and special revelation really is the touchstone for us. It's really the the plumb line by which we judge our interpretation of everything, including general revelation. So, what exactly does special revelation say? about general revelation. I mean, does, if we read scripture, does it say, you know, here's what you can learn from yeah. general revelation? So, so think about how the scripture begins. I'm going to give a, I'm going to go from beginning to end with some examples. So how does it begin in the beginning? God created the heavens and the earth and it goes there into a description of creation. It doesn't tell you who God is. It assumes, you know, that coming into the text and there's a beginning 
and God was already there at the beginning. So it starts off with God's eternal. Nothing else is eternal with God. Think about where it begins with the challenge to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Now, you might think that's a challenge about special revelation because it's challenging the uh, the specific command of God. But think about how, how Satan justifies it. Satan says, because you can be as God. Hmm. Nothing was revealed yet directly by God about that. They would have had to figure that out themselves from general revelation, and it wouldn't be too hard. I mean, how old were they? Right? Like, clearly, I haven't existed from eternity. Isn't the idea that they could become as God or like God, wasn't that something that Satan introduced into the realm of possibility for them? That wasn't something that they came up with. Yeah, right. That's, a, that's his, his test for them. Uh, the very first test in human history was a philosophy test. And it was a true-false test, and it was about what's eternal. That's it. Do you know what's eternal? Maybe you're eternal. And they should have said, no, I'm not eternal. Uh, I can't become God. Imagine this idea, right? Because you'll have some, some Christians really wrestle with this, and they say, wait, it says we'll be God. Uh, no, no, that's sanctification you're thinking of, which means we're made holy, righteous, and with knowledge, uh, but we're always finite, temporal, and We never become infinite in knowledge. Let alone, think about this, you can become eternal without beginning. Square circle. Right. If you had a beginning, you can't go back and have had no beginning. But that's not really what Satan was promising or, or referring to, is it? Wasn't he saying you'll be like God in the sense that you'll have greater knowledge of morality, right and wrong? Because doesn't God authenticate that? When he comes down, he says... They've now become like one of us, knowing good from evil. So isn't there some sense in which they were well, aspiring to godhood, but not in not in the endless, you know, eternality sense, but more in the moral wisdom or moral uh, knowledge? Well, well, how does God hold those, that kind of knowledge? It, infinitely, right? Yeah, yeah. So they, they can't have, when it says, when it says, and now they've become one of us, that if that means now they've become infinite, well, now we have a contradiction in scripture because they're not. So it okay. must mean this is a good interpretive principle for, for what you just said that the Bible, the, the word, the scriptures correct generalization, but it goes both ways in this sense. Hmm. If you come to something in scripture and your interpretation involves a self-contradiction, you must be wrong. Right. So it can't mean that. It must mean they've put themselves in that position. Ooh. Okay. So when God says, well, why, why can't God just mean, and let me pull up the exact verse. When he says they have become like one of us, you know, knowing good and one evil. And I'm speaking with this weird cadence because I'm typing it into my computer right now. Genesis 3.22. It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, so he actually delineates, he differentiates between this sort of eternality. And I, maybe you say, well, yeah, he's talking about mm -hmm. everlastingness, you know, into the future. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Doesn't yeah. He say that become yeah. Eternal life. That'd be a good question. Let's come to that one next. Does yeah. eternal life mean we go back to having had no beginning all of a sudden? Well, no, I mean, of course not. Yeah. It also shows up in John 17, three, Jesus says eternal life is knowing God. Yeah. So, so, but let's stick on this, this first point though. Now they become like one of us. If that means now they've become infinite, 
Well, no, they clearly haven't. Right. So the other reading is now they've put themselves in the place of God in this specific way that he names. They're determining good and evil for themselves. Mm. Now, that's something only God can do as a creator. Okay. And so they put themselves in the place of creator. God as creator, he decides what's good and evil. Now, that might sound like divine command theory. We could talk about that. It, it isn't because he, he determines good and evil by, the, by making the nature of things, which is what he just did in Genesis chapter one. Right. They should know they can't determine good and evil like God. We'll never be like that. We'll always discover good and evil by thinking, mm. by knowing the nature of things. That's a Think Institute, right? Yeah, I like it. We, we, that's putting themselves in the place of God. So that's why I say that very first test was a philosophy test about what is eternal, what isn't eternal. Okay. And so all of the troubles, think of all the troubles in human history since then to the present. Humans put themselves to say, here's what's good and evil, rather than uh, obeying what God has said is good and evil. All those theories you mentioned earlier, Marxism. Yeah, uh, I forget the other one you mentioned. Um, I went over Darwinism, Marxism, yeah. Freud. We can go over these because because what happens is sometimes Christians say those are general revelation, so let's avoid general revelation. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I'm just. Uh, I was just reading. Oh, you know what it was? I just finished Vody Balkum's book Fault Lines, and he's addressing critical race theory and what he calls the the coming catastrophe or cataclysm or something uh, in the evangelical world and one of the codas of the book is the 2019 resolution in that was put forward to the southern baptist convention addressing critical race theory have you heard of this hmm. i haven't read that book okay so uh back in 2019 there was this resolution and it caused much consternation among conservative Southern Baptists. I wasn't Southern Baptist at the time, although I am now. And the reason why it caused all this brouhaha was because basically what it said, um, they, they took this resolution that was originally very anti-CRT, anti-social Marxist, and it, it uh, almost flipped it directly on its head. This, the resolution committee rewrote it hmm. to essentially affirm CRT as a, theory that was sort of drawn from general revelation that yeah. had been corrupted by Marxists or by, you know, ne'er-do-wells, but really it kind of is, is drawing from general revelation. Yeah. And, um, you know, what I hear you saying is just because someone claims to have drawn something from general revelation right. doesn't actually mean that this is coming from God. Yes. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And here's the test I would give. All right. Let's say those are, there are levels of things just like, just like in a house or just like at the university where I teach. There are 600 level classes, 500 level classes, 400 level, all the way down to 101, right? So if someone tells me they've figured out general revelation and it's a 400 level topic, and I ask them, well, great, that means you must have mastered the 101 level. Can you show it's clear that God exists and hmm. you can't? Huh. Then I've got some doubts about how well they've done at the 400 level. So that's where I would press back and say, all right, I know this is a hot topic. Everyone wants to talk about this. Let's start with the most important topic, which is our knowledge of God. Yeah. A lot of other stuff about economics and disparity works itself out only if we know what our highest good is. Amen. Economics, economics is the study of the distribution of scarce goods, right? There's only so much money. There's only so much gold. There's only so much oil. Economics studies how a society distributes those on what basis. Right. The good isn't scarce. 
Everybody can know God as much as they want. That's the one we should be spending most of our time on. And a lot of times our, our fights are about these other things. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. It reminds me of a conversation I was just having earlier today in the YouTube comments of all places on one of my videos where I'll spare you the details, Owen, but essentially the, the video was about a hot social topic right now. And people were essentially saying that my view was wrong on it, that my guest's view was wrong. And probably even the apostle Paul's view was wrong. And so here's, you know, the correct view, the, the view of Jesus, as opposed to Paul, as if you could separate Jesus and Paul. And what occurred to me as I was going back and forth in the comments was there's a much more fundamental issue here. This person is trying to draw insights from the world about morality and ethics and social policy, yeah. but they're not submitted to God's word in the first place to the extent where they think they can chop it up and divide Jesus from Paul. And maybe Paul didn't yeah. get something right. So there's this yeah. fundamental prior presupposition that they have that is clouding their ability to gain wisdom from scripture and from the world. Yeah. It's like, you need to have this ordered relationship between general and special revelation. Well, and as you're pointing out, there's presuppositions about special revelation that it's one book, uh, not 66 books with multiple authors who contradict each other, right. but it's one book with one coherent message over a span of time. So that's exactly what I, when I was giving the example of 600 level classes, 500 level classes, I was illustrating what it means to think presuppositionally. And if someone doesn't want to think presuppositionally, that means they don't want to examine their assumptions then a conversation is not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So that, that, but also here, here's the thing. Let me, let me throw another, just like I kind of did with uh, Genesis three. Let me throw another uh, wrench in there. I think the word God's word as described in John chapter one covers both creation and redemption. It says the logos was in the world and the world knew him not. That's creation. So the world was made by the logos to make God known. It's part of the word of God also. Yeah. So the problem isn't ever pitting the two against each other. The yeah. problem is misunderstanding one of them. And if anyone, and people will say to me sometimes, yeah, but gender relations is really easy to misunderstand. How many denominations are there who all disagree about scripture? Do you really think maybe, maybe it's the reverse. Maybe scripture is easy to misunderstand. Or here's the truth. The misunderstanding is that no one's seeking. So it's back on us. In other words, this is what I think is great, because I think one of your questions will get to this. If gender relation is so clear, why do people miss it? Well, there's two possible stories. One is it's not clear. It's vague. It's like a shadowy figure down a dark path, and you kind of make out that it's God, and I'm doing the best I can. That's one story. And guess who the hero of that story is? Me. Yeah. I'm doing my best. God's hard to know. Which Here's another story. That goes right back to our previous conversation on yeah. the hero's journey, the yeah. monomyth, the real hero of the monomyth and the hero's journey. Yes, I know it, it's a it's a Luciferian story in a lot of ways, but ultimately Lucifer or whoever the hero is, is a proxy, Loki or whoever, mm -hmm. is a proxy for you and me. We yeah. are the hero. Man, self-justification at the yeah. expense of God. Do you remember what God reprimanded Job for? You justified um, yourself at my expense. Right. Yes. So all wow. these stories have to do with I justify myself at the expense of God. So that was one possibility. Here's the other possibility about general revelation. It's as clear as it can get. 
And I don't know it because I'm not seeking. And I need to repent of that. That's so, the beginning of the beginning of repentance is I didn't seek God. And because I didn't seek God, I didn't understand. And because I didn't understand, I didn't do what is right. That sounds an awful lot like Proverbs 1, 7 and 9, 10. The fear of the Lord yep. is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear yep. God is to be in right attitudinal relationship with him. It's it's yeah. to repent. It's the Jesus' awe first word, repent and believe the gospel. Yep. Awe or respect of God and who God is. God alone is eternal. I'm not. God made all things. He made me in all things, as Lucas told us. Yep. And uh, I instead, I put myself in the place of God to determine for myself. Now, how many hot button topics today are about that? I'll put myself in the place of God to determine what's good and evil for myself. God's not going to tell me. Now, now here's a here's a problematic part. It's also true that people in the name of religion have abused religion. Right. So it's on us. In other words, they've come and they've said, God told us to, to do this. And out of that, they get wealthy for themselves. Yeah. So it's on us either way, whether it's the abuse of uh, religion or the complete neglect of the revelation of God, it's on us to be able to think the think Institute, right? We need to be able to learn to think critically and, and know God ourselves. And then we wouldn't be susceptible to someone misusing religion. What do you make then of the argument from divine hiddenness? The idea, or maybe you could tell us what is the yeah. argument from divine hiddenness? Who, who uses that argument? And then what do you, what do you think God thinks of that argument? So it can go a couple ways by the atheists. What the atheist says is uh, if God existed, he'd make himself known. Bertrand Russell might say not enough evidence, God. And, and the atheists might say, look, if, if I, if I was a loving heavenly father and I wanted my kids to know I existed, I would leave notes all around the house. I mean, you know, if I'm invisible, I'm invisible dad, but I want my kids to know I'm there. Yeah. I, I write things in the sky for them to see. So the idea is, if God exists, he's made himself known. And here's what I love about this. He's not done that. <laughs> Therefore, he doesn't exist. Right. So I'm going to come back to that because that's where I think he's wrong. But unfortunately, a lot of Christian apologists say, yeah, you're right. Uh, he hasn't made himself known. But the reason is, is for soul making. It's called the soul making theodicy. It makes us have to really fight hard to figure out if God exists or not. Which is, I'm, I'm, I'm doing like a face palm right now because... Doesn't that fly in the face of Acts 17? He is not far from any one of us. No. Acts uh, chapter, I mean, Romans chapter one. I mean. Yeah. God's eternal power and divine nature. His invisible attributes have been clearly seen. So they're invisible. And yet he's clearly, he's clearly shown them. Here's what I've seen. The them, but he's made them seen. Yeah. I think here's where the problem is, is that there is a distinction between objective clarity. It's objectively clear that two plus two is four. And subjective clarity, which is that there's a whole bunch of kindergartners who get that question wrong on the first day of math. Yeah, true. That doesn't mean that the answer is not clear. Yeah. Well, and not only kindergartners, nowadays it's um, enlightened elite thinkers on Twitter who are trying to find new ways for two plus two to equal five or you yeah. know, two plus two is four. That's, you know, that's uh, oppressive now. So. Yeah, so yeah, math, math, you have to change math. But I use that example because most people will say, okay, two plus two is four. Everyone knows that. Everyone so does back know to the that. atheist. Yeah, so back to the atheist. I agree. If God exists, this is actually what my book, The Clarity of God Existence, is about. Hmm. I take that premise. If God exists and God holds us responsible, 
then it must be clear that God exists. Right. And interestingly, the atheist, my, my, my dissertation advisor was an atheist, and, and the atheist always says, well, yeah, you're right about that. It's the Christians I encounter who say, no, it doesn't have to be clear that God exists. And they're the ones who, who are willing to give that up. I'm saying, no, we stand boldly on that point, whether it's with Romans or with the Westminster Confession. We stand boldly on that point. And we say, indeed, you're right. It should be clear. And it is clear. And it's our responsibility for not having seen that. So let me ask you this then. What do theologians get wrong about general revelation? Here, here's what I think. Uh, real quick, before I answer that one, can I can I do one more dimension of, of the hiddenness? Please, yeah, yeah. Because there's this, this is what I when I in my my uh, prom of evil section at Phoenix Seminary, I go over what I call the pastoral prom of evil, which includes the pastoral divine hiddenness. And what I mean by that is. It, as, as pastors, my students want to become pastors and go on the ministry of some kind. You're going to encounter people who say, look, I just went through a really terrible time in life. Where was God? That's a problem we also find the psalmist wrestling with sometimes. That's a real problem. I'm not dismissing that or making it sound like it's a simple or easy. Right. The psalms do a wonderful job. That's our spiritual guide, I think, for that kind of problem. And what and, and my, one of my favorites is Psalm 73. And Asaph goes through this problem in his mind. Of his, life's just not fair. The rich are doing wonderful. I'm not doing well at all. By the end of the psalm, he's saying, God holds me by my right hand this whole time. I was like a brute beast forever doubting that. Yeah. So in other words, it, it, God is not hidden. It's back on me to say, why did I ever doubt God? But I think that's one of many psalms that wrestle through that problem, which is a very real problem, and we shouldn't dismiss or take it lightly but that problem is one of the things that spurs us like it did for asaph in psalm 73 spurs us to to seek after god yeah mm -hmm. would a person be equally justified in arriving at the christian god or the muslim god mm -hmm. or some sort of bare theism or deism based on general revelation because we hear this kind of thing all the time yeah what are your thoughts yeah well what happens is it's a kind of a vague higher power I've seen um, uh, philosophers get excited if another philosopher rejects materialism. And that's one reason they like Plato and Aristotle. They'll say, wow, this is great. They, they really show the Greek materialists who's boss. Yeah. Antony but, Flew became a, a deist before right. he died. And again, they had a whole, whole journal articles written about how, yes, he's finally gotten there. But look, logically speaking, Greek dualism and Greek materialism are equally far from God the creator. They both reject God the creator. Hmm. They both are uh, what people need to repent of. Think about Paul in Athens. When he's speaking to the Epicureans, he, he's speaking to people who are atomists, who say only atoms in the void exist. There is no yeah. soul. There's no afterlife. There's no God. But he's also speaking to the, to the Stoics. They say all is eternal. It's all in an eternal cycle. The myth of the eternal return that Nietzsche writes about as well. Yeah. So he's speaking to both of them and saying, you both need to repent. Not just the materialist and the other guys, the Stoics, who they sometimes talked about the logos, the animating spirit of the world. Sure. They both fell short of coming to know who God is. And, and, and that's from a general revelation. The solution is scripture. The redemption is in scripture and the knowledge of uh, the one who he's raised up, Paul says, from the dead. Yeah. So when, when you wonder, well, where, where do we go wrong in revelation? Here's where I think we go wrong. When we think in terms of being saved 
to go to heaven, which again, I think is more of that Gnostic influence. What, what happens is we start to think about the suffering of this life is due to my material existence. And if I say a, a salvation prayer, then when I die, I'll go to the spiritual realm and live forever. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that's not even scriptural, let alone from general relation. What, what that does is it sets aside all the works of God in creation and history. And it looks instead to have this otherworldly benefit. Yeah. So I think that whole, the word being saved is in scripture, but the meaning that's, that's maybe come down to us in a current American context of being saved to go to heaven is a misunderstanding of what it is to be saved. What you're saved from is unbelief. So you can have eternal life, which Jesus said is knowing God. Yeah. And we know God through the works of God. So you go from, in, in being saved or being born again, you go from being dead, not knowing God and his works, to being reborn or regenerated. So now you can know God. And you know God by what God's done, not by departing from all the works of God to go somewhere else. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because if we think about the world in terms of being a theater on which God displays his majesty and his attributes, or, you know, it's, it's this divine arena where we encounter God, then escape from creation would actually give us less of God's revelation. It would actually yeah. give us less closeness to God, less knowledge about God. Psalm yeah. 19 doesn't apply in the ethereal world yeah. where there is no heaven. Yeah. There, That's no, what you no, and I have called the, the monomyth or the Luciferian story, which is, yeah, Lucifer hates creation. Yeah. He wants to he wants you either to ignore it or to deny that there are kinds of things. Everything is just one kind that blurs together. Yeah. It's the works of God, and he hates God. Yeah. And so all of those who, who follow him hate God also and hate the works of God. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so. What we want to do is, I think, if we turn from thinking of saved to go to heaven, if we said saved to know God, just that one simple phrase would would mm -hmm. clear up a lot of that. Saved to know God. Not yeah, I get to know. I get to know God who created all things. Yeah. Even though I've turned my back on Him. Right, and man, can you imagine how that would change our perspective too, and how we would live here on Earth? Because, yeah. you know, there's that expression of being which I hate, but being too heavenly minded to be any er earthly yeah. good. But if you imagine a world full of believers who have it in their mind, in our hearts, that we're saved to know God, well, that starts at the moment of regeneration. Yeah. That starts at baptism. That starts at conversion. So we're going, we, we would, we would go about our lives, not waiting you know singing like the old 90s uh contemporary yeah. christian songs how this world is just a waiting room yeah just waiting it's, you're a pilgrim passing on through yeah now we would we would think and live as though we are already living in that divine reality of knowing god you know, eternal life has started yep what's this bumper sticker n-o-t-w not of this world not of this world yeah now that could mean i'm not of the kingdom of darkness true right but it more often means I'm not of the material realm. I'm going on to heaven. Right. Well, yeah, I think this this connects up with something you and I were talking about just before we started the video, which is post-millennialism, yeah. which is the affirmation. Here's how Isaiah puts it in, in 11.9. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Not will die, go to heaven, and stare at a spirit forever, which you can't see anyway. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. That's a culminating vision of good overcoming evil. Yeah. That's the fullness of the kingdom coming into all areas of human life. Are and you that's what 
That's a Christian hope. Amen. Are you post mill? Do you hold post mill? Yeah. Yep. You do. So we'll have to talk about that at some time too. Yep. Uh, at some point, because I'm I'm a mill and um, optimistic. Oh, I, you have to be optimistic. Um, I'm an yeah. evangelist. Yeah. Yeah. So you and I probably a lot of times there's not a lot of big, not a lot of difference Correct. between optimistic and post mill. The only difference might be about if the kingdom, if if Christ been given all authority now on earth, then I might push you into being post mill. Yeah. Uh, I well. Okay, let's let's put a pin in that because I don't have all my arguments worked out, and I I could very easily go down that um, mm-hmm. go down that uh, corridor there and yep. and and and, uh, and 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 I do that all too often. Here's a question for you. So, you know, I like to open up these conversations to the Think Squad Facebook group. Well, Zach Adam in that group hit me with at least three questions, and they're all doozies. So. Oh, this is probably a good place in our conversation for me to bring the first one to you. And it's something that I wanted to ask as well, but he, he went even further. So I wanted to ask you, what exactly does general revelation actually reveal about God? And Zach puts it this way. He says, and I quote, I would like a laundry list of all the ways creation reveals God. Hashtag hold nothing back. So, so what does creation reveal about God? And please yep. be as specific and detailed and numerous as you can. And you kind of asked that a moment ago, and we didn't get to it when you asked, does he get to the God of Christianity, et cetera? Right. So, I mean, look, let, let's start. For Zach's question to be to be properly answered, we need to give arguments to show it. Whereas what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to say some things, and, and he could say, well, look, you're just saying that, though. How do we know that? So, but but that's where we have to start. So, so I would just start with uh, chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession, here's what it says. The light of nature, which is an older term for reason, the light of nature shows there is a God, and here's what it says, who has lordship and sovereignty over all. So that's not Aristotle's God, is good and does good unto all, is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. But that an acceptable way of worshiping God is ensued by himself. So that gets to both general and special revelation. So that's a laundry list, so to speak, of things you can know about God. Or how about this? How about just the fourth uh, question of the Shorter Catechism, which is, what is God? Now, it doesn't say here, this is known from general revelation, but it's consistent with what we just read. That this is all general revelation. Uh, what is God? I'll open a larger catechism. What is God? God's a spirit. I think you can know that because you can know the material world had a beginning. Mm. So what had no beginning must be non-material. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those three go together. They're called the incommunicable attributes. Whatever is eternal is infinite and unchanging. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remember, eternal meaning no beginning. Right. And then uh, it says, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So those are properties we have. I, I can have holiness, but always finitely. And that's a communicable attribute. Right, yeah. Yeah. So... So that's a laundry list. I think we can prove every one of those from general revelation. We can and should know that. And that's what we're restored to by redemption. Yeah. Well, isn't that amazing, though, too? Because as a Christian, I I look out at creation and I'm I'm awed, man. I look around. I mean, we live, we used to live in Chicago. We now moved out to the Tri-Cities, 50 miles west of Chicago. And we are on the verge of of we're on the barrier between where the farms of Illinois start, where it's mm-hmm. just farms as far as 
you can go all the way out to Iowa and beyond. Yeah, all on down south. Yes. Uh and and I like I mean I love going for drives, just these these mind clearing, soul clearing drives. And I love driving around our area because it's a little hilly. It's not there's not many hills in Illinois by us, but it's a little hilly and there's these little patches of trees and these rolling um fields of crops and then the blue sky with these epic clouds. And I'm driving around and I'll look and I'm just in awe of God's world and yeah. you know you want to talk about the the eternal power and divine nature i see that driving around yeah and so it's now i'm not i don't have my bible open as i drive obviously i couldn't do that but i can look and i can see that is the same god that i'm reading about in first kings with my kids yeah, the not same a god vague, that, not just a vague that, higher power this is right. the creator yes it's the same god it's it's the god of 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 psalm 19 and um I have this friend who recently, well, a couple of years ago, he moved down to Florida, but I got, this is a guy, I knew him when he was not a Christian and I got to walk him over the line of faith with my buddy, Larry Dolendi. Larry and I walked this guy over the line of faith. We, we prayed with him to receive Christ. And he told me later on when he was driving home, we were meeting at this bagel place. He had this experience where he's driving and he looks out his window and he looks up at the sky, Owen. And he said, here's how we described it. For the first time in my life, I realized that the sky was blue. I never, and I'm like, man, what do you mean? You never knew the sky was blue? What are you talking about? He goes, I never saw it before. I never realized. And and it was like the his eyes were open yeah. in such a way that he could see general revelation in a way that he had never yeah. seen it before. Well, that's what I like about this term I just read, the light of nature. Yes. And chapter 1.1 also uses that phrase because it's as if you're – your mind is dark. The light of nature is not on. Yeah. And then in regeneration, it's turned on and you see the sky's blue, so to speak, but you see that the material world was created by God, that you're created by God, that your greatest good is in knowing God. So it really is a matter of life or death, not a matter of degrees. Yeah. But you're, you're born in your trespasses and sins. You're born dead and you need to be born again. And it's interesting, Nicodemus didn't didn't get it. Like, what? I can't enter into my mother's womb a second time. Uh-huh. Right? And here, here he'd been teaching in Israel all this time. And Jesus reprimands him for not knowing that. Yeah. Yep. So are you saying, Owen, that general revelation reveals the need to be born again? Yeah, I think it's it. Because here's from what we just said. Let's say sometimes an apologist might say, yeah, whenever I see a sunset, it's so beautiful. I know God exists. That's a kind of like direct perception. I'm suggesting we need arguments, which have premise, premise, conclusion, because someone else could have a different perception and we're left with this question, which one's correct? Well, now we need an argument. Mm. So it's not just perception. It's arguments that support a conclusion. And one of those is the problem of evil. So someone could say, I looked out and I saw the sunset. It was so beautiful. And someone else says, yeah, but I looked out. And in between me and the sunset, I saw death and misery in right. nature. Right. But I think that the, the problem of evil actually magnifies the revelation of the glory of God. So that it, it's, it's, an, it's not something that minimizes it or hides it or obscures it. It's something that makes God even more clearly revealed. How so? Well, you asked, the reason I got there is you asked, does general revelation should we need to be born again? Yeah, I think the clarity of general revelation teaches us up right up to the point of saying, I realize it's clear God exists. I've turned my back on God and I'm dead. Mm. And that 
I'm also suffering in this life because God's handed me over to suffer. Yeah. To be called back, to stop and think. It's God's, it's God's providential hand in my life and in the world. And all of those are telling me I need to seek God. And I also know the answer of how to do that can't be from me or some other human who's fallen. It has to be from God, which is special revelation. Yeah. Okay. Um, this Let me ask you, Mitchell, how many books on earth claim to be that? Because someone will say, oh, uh, there's so many, though. There's there's live. Yeah. Look at behind Joel. There's all these books. There's libraries filled with books that claim to be that. I think there's only one. That that is one of the things I keep coming back to that point. Are you well, let me let me let me see if I understand you. You're saying that the Bible is the only book that even claims mm -hmm, to yeah. reveal God in that way. That claims it's, to explain the, the only Bible. book starting in Genesis one through three. It's the only book that says God the Creator. Here's what sin is. Here's how be to redeemed of it. You know I love that because I, I fully agree with you, and I love it because. You have other books. People say, "Well, what about the Quran? How do you know that's not from God? What do, What about the um, the the Vedas? You know, the Bhagavad Gita, Gnostic you, Gospels." Yeah, the Gnostic Gospels. Sure. Ultimately, what you have is you either have a a or the Enuma Elish, if you want to go back in history. Yeah, you have Egyptian a book of the dead. There's all these. Yes. So you either have a substitute story that is that does not have the explanatory power, that does not actually jive, you know, maybe mythologically or archetypically or whatever, it makes some sense, but it does not actually jive with the the natural world, especially this side of the scientific revol revolution. Like the Enuma Elish does not explain the actual world in which we live. And well, then that, it's it's just one of these monistic books, right? Correct. All things came out of chaos. Right. And then the gods came out of that. And then they made more gods. Then there was a war between the gods. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that's what I say. Those don't even claim God the creator. Right. And and not only that, but like even if you look at the Quran, the, the Quran is a derivative of the Bible. It well, yeah, that's why I said Genesis that you already read the Bible. Right. Yeah. So that's a book. The the Quran or the Book of Mormon comes after the Bible. Mm -hmm. So then just like, but that's true for even for say the Gospel of John. It comes after Genesis. So Genesis 1 through 3, I think, gives us the unit by which we judge the next books. If they say something inconsistent with Genesis 1 through 3, then we know that, well, that's not the case. If a book comes along and says God has a body and a physical wife and they have babies in heaven who then come into your body as a, a soul and a body, no, that's, that's contrary to general relation. You don't even need to ask if it's contrary to the Bible. Right. Just just so that we're clear, we're talking about Mormonism there with that last piece. That or no, there's lots of no views like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Drilling down then more about what does general revelation reveal about God? This is one, I, I have an answer to this. I want to know what your answer is. Do you think that general revelation reveals the triune nature of God? I think it can allow us to anticipate it without giving a because he, here's another objection in the enlightenment there was a thinker named christian wolf and so he represents a school called wolfianism wolfian rationalism and he would say we could know all the truths of the bible from reason alone and kant emmanuel kant was a wolfian but when he read the skepticism of david hume he realized hume had destroyed rationalism and so it says that he said that awoke me from my dogmatic slumbers. So 
a lot of Christians since then have said, oh, I don't want to become a rationalist. And, and Dr. Anderson mentioned reason. He's probably a rationalist. Well, no, the problem with rationalism is that you said you can deduce everything that's in the Bible just from reason. No. So I would want to be careful. I don't think you can deduce, say, the Trinity and the details of it. That's a that's some, something of the beauty. What the, the word Paul uses of mystery revealed, and Paul doesn't mean Gnostic mystery. Hmm. He doesn't mean a, a spiritual contradiction. He means what we mean. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I like mysteries. Sure. And totally. When I get to the end of a mystery, there better be an answer. Yeah. If I get to the end of a mystery book and Poirot stands up and says, here's the solution. It's beyond all comprehension. So what? Right. I, I read 500 pages for that. Right. So that's not a biblical mystery. A biblical mystery is just like the ones you and I like, which is more information is revealed. And here's one Paul. Here's a mystery Paul talks about. The Gentiles are going to come into the faith also. That's mm -hmm. a mystery that was revealed mm -hmm. later in Scripture. So I think the Trinity is like that. It's a mystery, not in the sense of a contradiction, but that's increasingly revealed. It's there. I think it's there right away in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. But then we get that more deeply unfolding as we get into Scripture. Okay, so let me offer something, and I want to see what you think about this when it comes to the Trinity and general revelation. So you you might not even like how I frame this at all, but I, I like to think about the laws of logic a lot, which I, I don't even think you like that term, right? Laws of yeah, logic. No, that's fine. I understand what you mean. Yeah, laws. I use laws of thought. Laws of thought, right. So... The laws, laws of logic, laws of thought, thought, non-contradiction, excluded middle, and identity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here, here you've got three laws, each of which is uh, equally ultimate to the other two, such that they possess plurality and oneness mm -hmm. intrinsically in them. Yeah, and they're inter. They're they're inter. This is bad for the Trinity because you'll say that's a bit heresy. But those laws are interchangeable in the sense that if you have one, you get the other two. You can't divide them. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Good. Um, I don't know that it's bad for the Trinity, but maybe it is. Let Let me see here. So, but what I'm what I'm getting at is this: you've got these laws of logic, which which are true necessarily. There's no possible world in which I don't think there's no possible world in which the laws of logic, the laws of thought are not true. Yeah. Agree? Right. Yep. Yep. Because if, because if they're not true, then they, then they are true. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, the self-referential absurdity. of right. denying. So now that, that being the case, um, the laws of logic are propositions. And uh, James Anderson, I believe was recently on, capturing Christianity. And he did an amazing job of explaining how these laws, or really he, he broadens it out to any necessary truths, but I, I'm, I'm speaking specifically of the laws of thought, the laws of logic, logic. Um, they, they, they are thoughts. They just are thoughts. They're propositions and propositions are mental in nature. They are non-material and they, they just are thoughts. And so therefore they, they necessitate, or you might say presuppose, a mind that can contain those thoughts. But that mind, now here's here's where I want to bring everything together and come back to the Trinity. The, any mind that could contain those three laws of thought, each of which is equally ultimate to the others, inseparable from the others, um, must itself also 
have the attributes of oneness and diversity or plurality within itself, which means now we are, we can't be talking about a sort of bare monadic theism or Unitarian concept of God or some kind of, you know, general deism or something. We must be talking about a, um, a God, a divine mind that, that is unity and diversity within itself. And it must be triune. Here's why. And I'm, I'm, I'm riffing here, but bear with me because it must account for the three laws of logic and it need not account for any more than that. It, it need not be any more than three yeah. because now you're just multiplying um, pers- personages or uh, you're multiplying yeah. you know, entities or entities, not the right word, but persons um, ne- uh, unnecessarily. So Occam's razor yeah. would, would uh, militate against that. Yeah. So now you, if, if logic ex- is there necessarily and true necessarily, and it is, Therefore, God must be triune. Yeah. What do you think? I think I think this is right to say we should expect the highest level of both unity and diversity in the highest being. So that's right. That the highest being is not just simply unity, not simply diversity, but there's a unity of the unity of uh, and diversity. So that's right. And there might be some pretty good arguments for why three is the number. But I disagree with Dr. Anderson on this point. I, that Dr. Anderson, not myself. Uh, I disagree with myself about other things. Um, but on this point, the laws of thought aren't propositions. They're what makes propositions possible. So they aren't propositions. They're what makes propositions possible. That's why it's different to speak of the laws of logic, which are the laws governing inferences, and the laws of thought, which are the thought, the laws that make thinking possible. Now, that point may not affect the rest of the argument, which is there must be a mind if there are laws of thought. I okay, agree so about that. I don't want to pin too much on on uh, the other Dr. Anderson. Yeah. It's possible that I'm conflating his thing well, with my own here. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, right. I, 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 I guess I've interacted some with, with, with him on that point or with, with uh, your brother about that same question. Okay. But I think he's right to point out that there must be a mind. However, that's just the inside of Plato also. That's yeah, why Plato has the position he has against the Greek materialists. As he pointed out, there's a substance called mind, which is not matter. Yes. But what do you think about the idea that that mind must be, well, as you said, it must exhibit or inherently have the attributes of being yeah. one and yeah, I think many. So. Yeah. And, and what do you think about the idea that that uh, multiplying persons or or acknowledging yeah. more than three persons is simply, you know, is is militated against by Occam's razor because you don't need yeah. more than three? Yeah, I think I think there's something to that. I know David Hume in his dialogues concerning natural religion makes a comment about, well, yeah, why not many, many, many gods? Right. And I think later in um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, they kind of portray it that way. All these creatures making worlds, but they're all finite creatures. They're more like the polytheistic right. being. It's not God. So I, the way I phrase it usually is this. On, on the dual nature of Christ and the Trinity, which are normally understood to be purely redemptive revelation doctrines, general revelation prepares us for those. It doesn't give us those doctrines in the details. But for the reasons you've just suggested, I think we can know those things so that when we hear this doctrine— we're not, we don't think, well, that's weird. We think, oh, yeah, that's actually what I kind of expected to be mm. the case. Do you think but that I don't, it, Go ahead. 
Well, but 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 inexcusability isn't about that though. There are there are levels of increasing difficulty in say philosophy and theology. Sure. In, and that might be a more difficult one. And we might disagree, and, and that would be okay. There's some things it's okay to disagree about because yeah. uh, they assume a lot of other things. Some I've been critiqued. Someone critiqued me and said, "Dr. Anderson thinks everything's clear." No, I think the basic things about God are clear. Behind these questions about what we can know about the Trinity is the eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen, so that unbelief is without excuse. Mm -hmm. So that's where I would usually still come back to to say, "Yeah, those do seem compelling arguments. I don't disagree with you." If someone did disagree with you, what I would ask them is, okay, but how are you doing on what, what is clear? But, but divine nature, though, what is God's divine nature if not triune? Well, I take that to refer to his eternal power, meaning God alone is creator, eternal, he's a creator, and his divine nature is the list of things that I read from question four of the Shorter Catechism. Okay. Right. God's, a, God's a person, he's yeah. moral, he has power, he's good. I want to add, I want to add tri-personality to that list. I, I, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Here's, what's, here's where I think I might inch towards having an argument, which is that any person has knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. Those in me, my one person has all three of those. Hmm. But it wouldn't be a surprise if what is three things that aren't personal could also be three things that are personal in the highest being. Hmm. So we see that triune personality used sometimes as the basis for an argument for the Trinity. I think John Frame just entered the chat. Yeah, yeah, yep. So, so yeah, I'm not. I don't think I'm not opposed to any of those. It's just that I wouldn't want to miss more basic things like showing God alone is eternal hmm. to, to and jumping right to those. And here's the other one: when someone says, "Well, is this the Christian God or the God of the philosophers?" and they might sometimes mean just the Christian God is the Trinity. No, I want to add in that the God of the philosophers is the God I described earlier of Plato and Aristotle. He's not the creator. He's mm -hmm. co-eternal with us. Our, the, work, the world is not the works of God. Our greatest good is escaping this world. That's the God of the philosophers, and that's a flat-out idol that yeah. should be repented of. That's good. So when you turn away from that, then you're turning to the God who made all things. And then we can get into arguments between the revealed religions, specifically Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, because okay. they might all claim that God. And so then we can get into those differences. Well, here's what I, I find very fascinating about this approach is as a presuppositionalist, I always put forward, look, if you start with scripture and the biblical worldview, the worldview presented by the Bible, which as you were alluding to earlier, the Bible does have a complete worldview, Genesis to Revelation. It, it, the whole thing is encompassed in there, which yeah. makes the Bible unique. Um, but if you start with that worldview, view and that teaching. Now you can reason your way out into the world and it all makes sense. I like coming at it this way. Uh, one, because it, it, I feel like it's stretching muscles that I, I don't often use. Yeah. Um, plus, I also feel like it's it's accessing the created world and the, the cosmic order in a way that is more presuppositional. Um, yeah. it, you know, whereas like a classicalist or an evidentialist might, might do it, try to do it from more like a neutral standpoint. Um, but, but I, I like the I like the apologetic implications of this, and it reminds me of another question I wanted to ask you. Yeah, which is, how can Christians use appeals to the general revelation in their apologetics? And Owen, oh, do you see that there is a way to do this presuppositionally? Yeah. So, I, so I think I think presuppositionalism 
is correct. And I think that there are classical approaches who would say, hey, that's just what we've been doing the whole time. It just means that you recognize you have assumptions. So I tend not to wade into like, I'm going to figure it out between the classical and the presuppositionalist. I say, hey, great, guys. You've got arguments. I want to hear them cool. uh, about, about this stuff. But I think presuppositionalism is right. And, and, and I have a book where I study uh, Van Til, um, Reason and Worldviews. And what it's noticing is that thinking has an order. And so if you say something like, the earth is a billion years old, well, in that sentence are about 15 presuppositions that we need to look at. I just made a number up. But yeah. you got to look at those presuppositions, and they always come back down to your basic belief about what's eternal. I think all the world views, all the world religions can be categorized by what they say is eternal in the place of God. Mm. So I, for that reason, I think you're right. I think it's very important apologetical tool because it helps us learn to think in that order and get back to a fact that Paul gets to over and over in, a, in a, his witness, which is you've put something else in the place of God. Mm. So how might an apologetic argument from general revelation work if it were to be done presuppositionally? Well, I would start with the role of reason in knowing anything. Remember how earlier you were talking about somebody who you realized they didn't even hold the unity of scripture. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, you're right. You can't continue forward then quoting Paul if they don't even hold, you know, they're, maybe they're like Marcion and they don't think Paul is part of scripture. Right. So uh, I'd start with the most basic thing, which is that we can know things by reason. And then from there, the next step I would say is the first thing that reason tells us is something is eternal. And the second thing is, it's not me. So I would go in an order like that to what's eternal and what isn't eternal, specifically God. And I think I'd get all the attributes that the Shorter Catechism mentioned. Um, but apologetically or and existentially, here's where it would get to your audience, which is, what do you think is eternal? I, normally, I would start with that. I would start with a question. I wouldn't start just with a 10-hour lecture about what's eternal. i start with, hey, what do you think has existed from eternity? Okay. Well, I don't know. No one really knows. It's very hard. Oh, so, so you don't believe the reason can know things? Hmm. It's interesting because even that sentence is a, is a claim that we're using reason to know things, right? You right. use reason to figure out that you can't know things. Right. So usually you start like in apologetics, that, that kind of – a Socratic method of asking the other person. The idea that the universe, the cosmos itself exists contingently, needs a beginning, needs a cause. Those are all Christian presuppositions though. As a non-Christian, why couldn't I just say, look, I don't know how it works, but yeah. you know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe we are in, in this endless time loop somehow. Yeah. Yep. And and this, you know, it's very fascinating because I did, I think I told you I watched the, the Loki series. Yeah. And um, you know, I I enjoy Marvel, as you know, but I'm always looking for these little like the, mm. these these anti-biblical worldview things they're putting in there. And sure enough, one of the main teachings of the Loki series is that time is a loop. It's you know, yeah. the sacred timeline is endless it's it's and it happens uh owen anderson's character circle of life no, owen wilson's character your own disney anderson. disney loves the circle of life they do they love it yes and and it's a pagan it, mythology that's exactly what it is uh it's 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 eastern mysticism it's it's hindu religion it's well i you know, mentioned the stoics earlier and then nietzsche the myth of the eternal return so yeah that's right so that when i that I, i'd said this when i was answering that question from i think his name was zach yeah. That I'm saying things right now that need arguments. Yeah. 
So when I say the material world had a beginning, I don't think I'm not just asserting that we, I would need to give you an argument to show that because you're right. Okay. The other world religions might say there there's world religions that say there is no material world, right? You even have to prove there is one that blows people's minds usually to find out that at least half, maybe more of the world of, of the, of humans who've lived don't believe there's a material world at all. Right. So we it's take it for granted. All an illusion. Yeah. We, we take it for granted here. Uh, but that, that's simply not a, a premise they would, they would grant. So, so uh, I've been saying a lot of things here for our purposes that, yeah, you need to give an argument to show that. And that's why I begin with reason, because if, if arguments don't get us to reality, then none of that matters. Hmm. So there need to be some agreed upon presuppositions or premises, right? I mean, it, this is all going to be person relative, because if we are speaking to an Eastern religion adherent, and they don't, they believe that all the physical world around us is simply Maya, it's all an illusion. Yeah. There, there are going to be ways to deal with that presuppositionally. Yeah. Prior you have to, to know your world. I mean, it's presumptuous anyway to say that I know the truth and I'm going to give it to you when I don't even know the other worldviews that are out there as possibilities, right? Right. How presumptuous of me. So, yeah, you should get to know what are the worldviews and how are they categorized. And that's why I said I think the best categorizing way is by what they claim is eternal. You know, that's really good. And it reminds me of a uh, video that I recently watched of Greg Bonson from the early nineties, maybe late eighties. I think it was Greg Bonson. And he talks about how the world religions. No, who was it? Maybe it was in a book I was reading. This is the problem with, I take in so much. Sometimes I forget who, who I heard what from. And sometimes I just think that I made up something. And then yeah, I, you I, might've just told it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but essentially you can categorize the world's religions into these different categories. And if you have a defeater for that category, the whole category is, yeah. is done for. Yeah. Like if you can show that the belief all is eternal is false and that covers like five major religions, yeah. you don't have to go into the details of those. Right. Right. It's like, like let me give a hypothetical kid just between us, right. As a joke, if you can show that infants should be baptized you don't have to deal with every individual form of Baptist, right? Mm. They're all wrong. Right. So just, just a joke for our purposes, right? Well, sure. And it's it's funny. It is a joke. It's so outside the you know yeah. the realm no, of it can't be possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that yeah, but that overall approach. In other words, I don't need to get into the details of every kind of Marxist thought. They're all materialists, and materialism is false. We've covered a lot of ground today, but let's you know really bring it down to where the rubber meets the road. We're talking about we're talking about general revelation and we're talking about apologetics. What about when it comes to dads who are going to watch this and they're thinking, how am I going to raise my kids so that they have a healthy fear of the Lord and they have an awareness of the cosmos around them, the world around them and what it is teaching them about God. What do dads, especially young dads need to know in order to be able to lead their families and equip their kids to rightly interpret general revelation both for themselves and so that they're prepared and equipped to defend the truth of God's message. How does general revelation factor into it for those dads? I really think it starts there. And for this reason, I think what your child is going to want to know in different ways of development, different developmental stages, what they're going to want to know is what is their highest good? What gives their life meaning? So if a, if a, if a Christian youngster grows up, and they've been told to memorize lots of things, but then they get challenged in their college class. 
and they realize, well, I, I've memorized a lot of things, but I don't know what, what they mean or how they fit together to give my life meaning or what the highest good is, it'll all fall apart. And, and so I think a father wants to avoid that, um, would, would teach a kid, yeah, what is, what is your highest good? If your highest good is knowing God, then these other things fall into place because you'd say, I want to know God in all the ways he's made himself known. I want to know God in, in his works of creation and of providence, in general revelation and special revelation. And I think that that just having that piece in place would equip them for most of the kinds of challenges. Because the, the challenges that I, I see for young Christian students are from the schools of, say, Darwin, Marx, Freud, about yeah. the meaning of these beliefs. And if it's just another one of the delusions humans have invented to make themselves get through life before they die. Yeah, the opium of the masses. Yeah, and, and if, if all you have is, when I die, I go to heaven— You'll start to think, yeah, I get, you know, that really does seem to fit Marx's critique, I think. And on that point, I agree with Marx. The thing is, Marx, I think, was right in his critique of some of religion because that's all it has been doing. It, it hasn't been acknowledging God in the works of creation. So I think a father would want to teach his children that. It's summarized that way in the first question. What's the chief end of man? The highest thing you can aim at. And I don't think the glory of God means the dying and going to heaven, if we connect up that question with the, the question about the first commandment, which says you're to know God and all that by which he makes himself known. So you glorify God by knowing his, his works. What if, what if we had a generation of uh, uh, youngsters ready for that? Yeah. Um, what you said actually reminded me too of the classical trivium in education where you start with grammar and you learn the basic tenets and the yeah. things you're supposed to believe. You know, you get catechized. You, you yeah. mentioned Westminster quite a bit. I've got my catechism that I wrote catechids that I use with my own kids. Yeah. But if it just stops there that you haven't integrated, you haven't gone through the logic phase or the, um, right. the dialectic phase Absolutely. where you're, you know, yeah, you're, you're integrating. And then, and then there needs to be that rhetoric, that the the application of these ideas out into the world. I like to think of it as weaponizing what yeah. you've learned. Where yeah, I love, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I use that classical treatment, or, or I think it's absolutely right. It, it fits up with the developmental stages of the youngster. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. And so I think, I think apologetics. I love apologetics, but it could have a bad name in this sense. It could simply mean arguing for your position. And anybody has apologetics. That's what a lawyer is. You hire yeah. a lawyer. A lawyer will argue anything you'll pay them to argue. Mm -hmm. And they can be really good at it. So I want to connect apologetics up specifically with the knowledge of God and teach our kids to love knowing God. That, I think, will be, will be the piece of it. They'll love what you love. So if they see dad studying the knowledge of God, say, yeah, my dad really loves knowing God. There must be something to it. That's good. Can you just tell us, just again, for people who don't know, yeah. How can people follow your work? Um, yeah. When's your next book coming out? And yeah. uh, if they've got questions for you, how can they get in touch? Yeah, so if you want to keep uh, in touch with me or keep following my work, I have a few places where I do that. One is on YouTube as Dr. Owen Anderson. And I there I have a few different things. I have a series I call Hiking with Anderson, which is more informal uh, outside discussions. But then I also have a number of my lectures posted. I also have a webpage, drowenanderson.com, where I post – 
articles that I've written. And I have an Amazon authors page. If you go to Amazon and you look up Owen Anderson, you'll see my books. And if you go to my author page there, you'll see a list of all of them. And I'm continuing to do works. I'm, I'm working right now on a philosophical commentary of the Gospel of Luke. So that'll come after my philosophical commentary on Job. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And, um, you know, hey, listen, if you ever want to send me a, a, a copy, I'm happy to oh, yeah. to read that. Well, you got oh, Luke. Yeah. I mean, you got Job, right? I got Job. Yeah. 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 Once I get close to, once I get a rough draft, I will do that. I'll send you a PDF and you, uh, you know, you get an early draft. You can write back and you can mark it up and say wrong, wrong, wrong. Love it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> well, cool, man. Um, well, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much again yeah. for being on. Let's really appreciate you, brother. You're doing good work. Keep it up. Back at you. Okay. That about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of the Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support the Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute/partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. Mm -hmm.